the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. The Gospel readings for the first three Sundays in Lent all have to do with Christ's victories over the demonic powers. Over the weeks, these ancient spiritual enemies of God's people have been beaten into silence. In the first week, the devil of the wilderness spoke broadly, presumptuously, authoritatively, and enticingly to Jesus, and was defeated by the word of God until it ran away. In the second week, the devil afflicting the Canaanite woman's daughter offers no words but works with a fierce potency, grievously vexing the young girl. Yet, without even being in physical proximity, Jesus drives the demon away because of the astonishing faith and perseverance in prayer shown by the girl's mother. Today, we begin with a silenced demon who departs immediately and without spectacle. In these three weeks, Christ has demonstrated his great power over these foes as they are driven away by the power of his word. Before him, the demons, their temptations and afflictions are reduced to exile, to impotence, and to silence. But into that silence, other voices begin to speak. The gospel opens on the casting out of the mute demon, followed by the briefest of silences before the crowd begins to murmur. The miracle of deliverance is met with suspicion and accusation. Jesus immediately perceives this and also pinpoints the reason. Quote, if Satan is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. End quote. Our Lord highlights the absurdity of their claim while at the same time getting to the real issue behind the claim. In truth, like too many biblical scholars of our own time, they're willing to risk outlandish, speculative, and specious claims about Jesus and the devils in order to avoid the more obvious and logical alternative that Jesus is working with divine power, signaling that he is the Messiah and Lord whose kingdom has come. And if that's true, it means that the only thing to do now is to bend the knee and to repent before their God. The resistance to do this, though, runs deep through Israel's history. We'll recall that the name Israel itself means the one who struggles with God. The name given to Jacob after he grappled with the angel of the Lord in his wilderness wanderings. When Israel became a great nation in the wilderness after being delivered from Egypt, their striving with God persisted as they continually looked back to the relative comforts of their life in bondage. They murmured constantly against Moses and Aaron, claiming that these men had led them into the wilderness to die 
when they could have made it work back in Egypt. They balked at the commandments of God given at Sinai, preferring instead the captivity to the gods they knew, to this new servitude, to a new God of whose character they were still wary. So it was in first century Judea. After a century of captivity to the Babylonians and Persians, after centuries more of sorting through the rubble and fighting off invaders, after being sold out by a petty tyrant to the Romans and eking out an existence under Caesar, taxed to death and surrounded by disease and demonism, even in that state, the status quo looked preferable to yet more uncertainty and more change. It reveals for us, once more in Lent, that ancient human temptation to rule ourselves, even if the state is not worth speaking of, even if we lead ourselves into misery. A temptation stamped on our nature since the fall, when we sought in the beginning to become gods for ourselves. Egypt, Babylon, Rome, it doesn't really matter. What we really don't want is for someone to tell us what to do. And if presented with the idea that someone has a power to which we cannot aspire, we are tempted by that old wound in our soul to reject it and do as we will. And so the crowd begins to grumble against Jesus, to murmur against their God come among them. What in four weeks will become high-pitched cries of crucify begins today as a disdainful whisper. St. Paul understood this as a recovering Pharisee whose faction had participated in that murmuring and who had later conspired with the Romans to murder the man. A student of Israel's storied history, St. Paul knew how it was possible to be so zealous for God that you killed him when he came to meet you. This was St. Paul's own brutal testimony. He had studied all his life to become a righteous guardian of Israel's tenuous sense of stability, even at the expense of persecuting the actual Messiah and his people. He came to know firsthand that the impulse to self-govern at the heart of his ancestors' rebellions was the same impulse in his own heart that drove his own hyper-lawfulness, and that legalism was just another way of saying to God, I neither trust you, nor need you, nor want you. And it was in this unique blindness that always attends a self-regarding righteousness that Paul walked away from murdering St. Stephen, invigorated to go and hunt down the rest of them. But in that monomania, he is met by Christ in his glory on the Damascus Road, which blinds St. Paul to everything but Christ in that light. In that light, all else becomes darkness until he learns to see it again through Christ. And so in blinding the blind man, Christ makes him actually able to see. And so St. Paul's exhortation to the Ephesians this morning proceeds from his own experience of illumination 
And so he says, quote, All things that are exposed are manifested by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, Awake you who sleep and arise from the dead. Christ will give you light. This middle portion of the Lenten journey that we start today begins to reveal the heart of the season. To find out and to call out that thing in our lives that we hold too dearly. That thing for which we could be persuaded to begin murmuring and eventually to turn our backs on Jesus. To receive the light of Christ and and his merciful love in place of that thing. That is where a true Lent is found and where salvation really begins. But in this moment, where the things of darkness have begun to be drawn out, comes a new kind of temptation. For in having been led away from bondage to darkness, having tasted again that sweet freedom of liberty from habitual sin and from captivity to our appetites, we may come to think now in the middle of Lent that we're free again, to take back possession of our own lives. But Lent is not a self-help project, not a tool for propping up our own autonomy. The scriptures reveal that there is no such thing as a power vacuum or a self-driving soul. If darkness leaves, it must be immediately filled with the light of God, for the soul is a temple where either God will rightfully sit enthroned and adored, or else it will be a temple that is desecrated by another false usurper, be it the world, the flesh, the devil, or even just the petty tyrant of our own ego. The middle of the Lenten journey is difficult because there we find the temptation most to compromise, to say, that's enough this year to remain neutral in the moral battle, to co-opt the deliverance we've received, and to return to where we started again, attempting to leverage our freedom for a better stake in those things that previously captivated us. This time, we say, we'll be the ones in charge of those things. But it is not so. The things to which we continue to return after our deliverance become always more and more a hell to us. We cannot go back to them as we knew them before, no matter how hard we try. For one, we have seen the light that we cannot forget, and so they will be dimmer even as we try to pretend that there is bright. On the other hand, those things now bear the shame of defeat by the one who delivered us from them. And so if we return to serve them, they will abuse us more cruelly and tighten their grip on us more firmly than they ever did before. The only way is forward. We are not yet as whole or free as our Lord wants us to be. We must not strive to go back to the way of things before the Lenten season. We are with Christ, the light of the world in the wilderness now. He is going up to Jerusalem to die, and our way is to follow him, bearing our own crosses and die with him there. 
to go in any other direction now will be a relapse into an increasingly hostile darkness. As Lent goes on, the light and the darkness will only become more perfectly unlike each other, and the darkness will show itself for what it really is. It will demand with more and more forceful tones that we come back immediately. But at the same time, Jesus invites us with a firm and loving voice to continue following him and abiding in him. The fight will get more intense now, but we are never fighting alone. So let's encourage one another. Let's check in on one another. Let's support one another. The only way is forward, and the only way forward is together with Christ. Walk in his light, says St. Paul. Walk in his love. The devil can only continue to threaten, stalking about in the outer darkness to devour us the moment we set our foot back inside of it. But he can never snatch away or consume those who remain close to Jesus. As we enter the second half of Lent, don't look back. Our Lord goes up to Jerusalem to die, but then to rise again in triumph over the foe. We will rise again in victory with him if we will but follow him to the very end. As Jesus said, blessed are they who hear the word of God and keep it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.